0: story of their convictions and trying to get the convictions overturned. Uh, Serial is a podcast that has gone through a couple of different cases that sort of examines the ambiguity um, behind some people who have been charged with crimes of various types and we get really worked up about them. We're in a kind of cultural moment where people get super excited about this stuff because we just hate for justice to not be served. Even as you watch these shows, if you become convinced that one uh, a subject is guilty or innocent, some of us just start to get this like internal grinding, like we, we're cheering for them to either get convicted or get let off because we're just sure that that's the right thing and that's true, and we just have to have justice for the situation. Uh, and it shows kind of a cultural preoccupation that we have with those particular things. Um, If you haven't noticed recently, a lot of newspapers have been doing stories and exposés on crimes that people committed decades ago and trying to bring to light what they did. And I don't think that's all that bad, but I do think it's interesting that these things went uncared about for decades. And now all of a sudden, we're just real worked up to make sure that there is no single case of injustice that is left in our society. There's sort of the zeal to make sure that we get total, perfect justice. And that zeal, um, I think, somewhat is affected by generational issues. It's affected by our media. There's a whole lot of different reasons I think it's happening. But I think it's, I'm fairly confident in saying that it is happening, that we have that kind of interest in our culture. Today, as we finish, uh, come close to finishing our sermon series on Matthew, We come to the cross, and it should strike us that this is a case of extreme injustice. Uh, If there was ever a story about a conviction that should have been overturned, it is the story of Jesus. This is a man who suffered the death penalty in a very extreme way under a crooked regime based on trumped-up charges. And we can just see a lot of ways in which this story is not fair. It's not just. And what I think is interesting is that in our world where so many people are fighting so hard to make sure justice is served, there's some interesting things here about the way Jesus handles injustice, the way he handles injustice against himself. And I think that we can learn something kind of interesting from it. Just as throughout the series, Jesus has challenged our preconceptions on many things, I think that Jesus might challenge us here on how we deal with not being treated fairly what we do when people are not just towards us. And so that's uh, our story for today. All right. Um, We're going to go ahead and start uh, in Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival, uh, that is Passover, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. I want to take a few moments here just to uh, recognize and acknowledge just how incredibly unjust uh, the situation is like how how many ways that this doesn't work. Uh, first of all, it is simply legally unjust. Pilate here is the governor; he has the authority to fix this. Pilate himself goes, "There's no reason to charge him with anything. He hasn't done anything wrong. We should let him go." And regardless, Jesus is still punished. Uh, we all we know historically this is because Pilate was really close to getting fired by the emperor for not doing a good job. And the quickest way to get fired if you're a governor is to have a riot. And so Jesus, so here Pilate cares about nothing more than crowd control. These people might riot if I don't kill Jesus. So killing this man is a whole lot easier than dealing with the, the backlash if these people revolt. Um, so Pilate does this obviously legally incorrect thing and condemns a man that he know that he knows has no legitimate charge against him from a legal perspective. Uh, It's also relationally, um, uh, it's also comparatively unjust. Uh, We have this weird situation now where he usually releases one prisoner, and so he picks this guy named Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas, from what we know, was a revolutionary. He was uh, what we would call a terrorist. Uh, He would start and incite revolutions. This is the kind of man that if they release will potentially lead to murders in their community. This is the kind of man who would slit people's throats, the kind of man who would create violence in the streets, the kind of man that would create social unrest. And so Pilate tries to give them a very simple choice. Do you want this murdering psychopath back in your community, or do you want to let Jesus of Nazareth go? And they scream, we want Barabbas. It's comparatively unfair. You have the fact that Barabbas is saved and Jesus is punished, which is so patently ridiculous. Um, Sometimes we play this comparison game nowadays where something happens and we go, well, that's unjust, but not as unjust as this, right? We like to compare the good and the bad that's going on in the world. Well, Jesus is comparatively being treated uh, in an unjust way. There's also the, uh, the relational injustice, um, injustice, sorry. Sometimes we, uh, sometimes things happen because that's just the system, right? Uh, I talked about those true crime shows. One of the repeated motif in the true crime shows we have today is, well, the reason this person is unjustly uh, convicted is because the system's kind of broken and the judge applied the law the way the judge is supposed to and the lawyers all did their job, but something kind of fell through the cracks because this system doesn't allow, you know, the judge didn't know this guy. The judge didn't know the particularities of the situation. He just was doing his job. And sometimes when everybody does their job, the system just doesn't work that's not what happens to Jesus okay Pilate knows personally from this experience of his wife's dream he literally has his wife in his ear going I know that guy's not guilty you've got to let him go the passage also tells us that he is aware that it is an interpersonal fight with the scribes and the Pharisees that caused this, this, tri- this trial to happen. Pilate, uh, Matthew tells us, Matthew knew the charges were against him were baseless, but that this was happening because they didn't like Jesus. So this is a miscarriage of justice on an interpersonal rela- uh, level. This man knows that another man is innocent. The people who are charging Jesus know that he's innocent. It's not that it's a grand mistake of the system. It's literally people who know better who are still choosing to do the wrong thing. And then there's also the sense where it's just cosmically unjust. If you've read Matthew's gospel, you know this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is somehow the divine presence in a human being. And the creator of the universe is here being spit upon and murdered by his own creation. We all know how ridiculous that is, right? The idea that the one who's the architect of all that exists would allow himself to be subjugated to the hands of the very people that he created with his hands. Um, It's just the whole story is filled with this complete and utter sense of that's not fair, that's not right. And in the midst of it, Jesus responds in, I think, a very startling way. Verse 11 of chapter 27. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. This is really, Pilate can't wrap his mind around this. He knows these charges are false. He knows that if Jesus would raise just a little bit of a defense, maybe he'd be able to get him out of it. And as all of these charges and all these unjust things are happening, Jesus doesn't go, this is unfair. He doesn't give all the reasons why this shouldn't happen. There isn't a legal um, tug and pull, right? There's no uh, appeals to the greater courts, Jesus just sits there silently and just lets it happen. And at some level, you'd think even self-defense would kick in, right? At some point, Jesus would just say something. And he'd at least, um, if it was many of us, he'd at least say something like, listen, I know that I'm not going to get fair treatment here, but for the record, and he would make sure that he stated his defense, right? So that at least somebody wrote it down so that there would be... uh, for the prosperity of of history that someone would get to see his defense of his actions. And the text says Jesus said nothing. To use the right language of one of the prophets, like a sheep led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Now the question here is why? And this is what I want to dig into today as we try to learn from Jesus. Why, in the face of incredible injustice and punishment and pain and hatred, did Jesus say, you know, it's not even worth talking about? Why would you not say something? And I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think some of them are better than others. But I want us to explore this for a minute. Why does Jesus not open his mouth? Why doesn't he speak? Um, I think uh, the first reason many people will give is, oh, well, that's God's plan. This is actually a very uh, common, uh, devout answer that I hear in Bible school class, right? We say, well, why did Jesus not speak? And people go, well, because it was God's plan that he suffer. And I think there's some truth to that, okay? There is this idea throughout Scripture, particularly in some of the prophets, Isaiah, the suffering servant, this idea that God's Messiah will suffer for the people. So there is a sense in which it is God's plan for him to suffer. But the question for me, then, is, yeah, but why is it God's plan? And some people do this thing that I'm really uncomfortable with where they kind of handcuff God and put God into a corner. The way it usually goes is, well, listen, the wages of sin is death. Well, the Bible does say that, but why are the wages of sin death? That's just the way the universe works. Uh, Okay. So God had to send Jesus to die on the cross? Yes. In the economics of sin and death and righteousness, in the way that the universe exists, even God was backed into a corner and had to make Jesus die this way for us to be saved from our sins. Jesus did the only thing that could have worked. Now, from a theological perspective, I find this very troubling because it suggests that there are sort of Spiritual, um, spiritual physics, right, that have to be obeyed by even God. That righteousness and sin are not something that God is master over, but that God is restricted by, just like we're restricted by it. And that what happened here is God got himself into deep water with our sin, and the only way he could have possibly fixed it was this emergency back door, which is the cross. And so he was forced to go through it that way. And I'm just, I'm not okay with that. I I tend to think of God's sovereignty and power a little bit higher than that. I don't think God uh, is given rules by sin. I think God gives rules to sin. And so, yes, it's God's plan, but I don't think it was a preordained plan. I don't think it was required of him. I think that God does it because God wants to show that even in the midst of terrible, gross suffering and injustice, He can bring redemption and beauty. I think God chooses the cross because it was a perfect imagery of no matter how messed up stuff gets, God can still bring new life from it. No matter how trashed a situation is, morally and ethically and justice-wise, God can still bring something beautiful from it. And so yes, it's God's plan, but why is it God's plan? And I don't think the answer is because God had to do it that way. I think there's a, that God's trying to show us the redemption and the beauty that can come from these situations. So Jesus chooses to bring on this injustice, allows it to heap on top of himself so that he can prove that even in situations where you're mistreated, you can have hope. And this is good because many of us suffer injustice, Right? If the only way that God can bring holiness into the world is by a perfectly pristine, clean, just, holy, good situation, we are all in lots of trouble, right? Because we never experience those. And so Jesus takes on injustice to prove that our injustice doesn't have to be final. It doesn't have to be fatal. Um, I think the second reason why Jesus maybe does not open his mouth is because he knows it wouldn't make a difference. Uh, This is a car that drove through some cement, and then the cement uh, got hard. Uh, Pushing this car, it's really, there's not a lot of point in it, right? At this point, uh, a jackhammer is the only way that this car is going to be removed from the cement. And that is the situation of Jesus with these people bringing charges against him. He knows that they're not going to be moved. Their mind is not going to be changed. They're just going to do this because they've made up their hearts and minds that they're going to be evil. And you can imagine as they go on and on and on with all these false charges against Jesus, that if he even tried to open his mouth and interrupt and offer a defense, they would lie and they would cheat and they would say all kinds of things that weren't true. They would just totally turn the whole trial into a mockery. If Jesus said, well, I didn't do this, they would bring false witnesses and said, yes, you did. If Jesus tried to give any proof that his theology wasn't what they thought it was, they would say, well, yeah, and they would bluster into it, they would fight. You see this all the time in debates in our culture, right? Where either side could hear them, each other because they're just speaking for the other side. And Jesus knows that they would just blah, 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 on and on and on and on. And they wouldn't give him a fair chance. And so one of the reasons Jesus doesn't speak is because there's no point. One of the uh, teachers that I had in grad school had an expression for this that I really loved. Uh, His expression was, you can't out-puke a vulture. And what he meant by that is that there are times where you deal with someone that is so intent on being negative and destructive towards you, that if you engage in a conversation with them, you're only going to become negative and destructive yourself. And you're not going to be as good at it as they are because they're a bad person. <laughs> right? There are people like this in the world that are just so intent on being gross and defamatory and all these kinds of things that engaging in a conversation with them does nothing but drag you both down into the mud. And I think Jesus knows that's where the, where the situation has gone. They are so confident they want him dead. They're not going to be truthful. They're not going to be honest. They're not going to listen. So you just move on. Um, This is a difficult thing for us to measure in our life, but there are times where you will come across somebody. uh, We shouldn't write people off without talking to them. But if you there's, there'll there'll come a point where you'll be in certain conversations where you'll go, "There's no point in us talking anymore," because you don't want the truth. You don't want a discussion. You're not open minded. You just want nothing more than to pull both of us down. And I'm just not going to engage in that. So I think that's one of the reasons Jesus does it. Now, that being said, I don't think it's the only reason because I do think that Jesus had like Jedi mind trick options. Okay, right? I think that if he really wanted to have changed their minds, the Son of God could have, you know, like, I am not the Messiah you're looking for, right? This should have been a possibility, But he continues to allow these things to happen in spite of that. So just in the same way, I don't think it's just because it's God's plan. I don't think it's just because these people can't be argued with. Um, I think there's there's more to it. The next reason I think Jesus doesn't say anything is because uh, he wants to teach us how to love somebody to death. He realizes that these people need to experience his love of them more than his arguing with them he has reached a point where they need to experience love far more than they need to be taught the error of their ways now this is a hard one for us to get we always want to be right and we think often that it's loving to argue someone to death and finally disprove them of their wrong notions But Jesus here teaches us that, you know what? Sometimes saying, I love you, is a whole lot more important than telling them you're wrong. Because they're clearly wrong. But his purpose here is to express love. Not to out-argue them, not to win a fight, all those kinds of things. And this is really important as we recognize who God is, right? God describes himself in Scripture as a God who is abounding in love, and willing to forgive for uh, to forgive for generations and generations that ultimately there comes a point where accepting you and loving you and forgiving you is what God wants to do instead of punishing you and fighting with you and proving you that you're wrong right eventually he's going to prove you wrong but there's just this general embrace of God where he goes let's be in relationship first and then we can fix your behavior later that Way of living, of proceeding, uh, proceeding, uh, using relationship before behavior change is so important for us. We really do the opposite. With many people, we're like, listen, until you shape up, I want nothing to do with you. And Jesus says, no, I want to teach you to love somebody even if it kills you. Because by accepting them and loving them first, that's the only context in which you can convince them to be better and to do better. But I think the the final reason Jesus doesn't speak, and the most important one, is that Jesus knows where he stands with God. Jesus is relatively unconcerned with how his trial comes out because he knows that a true and higher judge is going to rule in his favor. Jesus knows that the verdict on Friday afternoon is nowhere near as important as the verdict of Sunday morning. And so he has this confidence. You guys can say what you want about me. You can put me to death. Do whatever you're going to do. I don't care. Because I know that my father is pleased with me. And I know that whatever you do today, he will undo. Whatever judgment and injustice I suffer at your hands will one day be experienced as justice in the kingdom of God. And so he doesn't have to worry about it. He doesn't have to fight about it because he knows the ultimate um, answer. Uh, The way the Hebrew writer says it is that for the joy set before him, he suffered the cross. Jesus was so focused on God's ultimate work in the world, his ultimate um, purpose of making things right, that he could deal with something not being right today because he said someday that's going to get fixed. Part of the reason I think our world is so hung up on justice is because they have no hope that it will someday be fixed in the kingdom to come. If you are truly convinced that you're going to die and turn into worm's food and there's nothing else that's left after that, then yeah, you're going to work like crazy to get justice. Because if you don't get justice by the time you die, then it's all going to be unfair for all of eternity. And so you got to get every inch of everything owed to you this second. Because I don't know if I'll have another one. And the Jesus approach to the world is, no, God will fix it. There is life after death. There is hope for the future. There is a kingdom that's coming. And you can suffer through the squabbles of this earth and this life because you know that there's a better thing coming. And when you live that way, you don't get so caught up. You don't have to be so worried about when people aren't treating you rightly or fairly. Now, there's an important balance here. I don't want to be heard wrong. The Bible says a lot about justice. In fact, Jesus says a lot about justice. And often, if not always, for Jesus, he is fighting for other people to be treated justly. But when it comes to how he's treated, he goes, eh, I'm not worried about it. We're, we're not that way. The second that we feel like we're being treated unfairly, we fight so hard. To make sure that you treat me like I deserve to be treated. And in response to that, I think Jesus says, just let it go. You don't have to be your own avenger. You don't have to fight for your own way. Um, What we see here is that in our own lives, when we model what Jesus has done for us, there's kind of um, all these things that are true of Jesus are true of us. In the same way that he suffers for God's plan... Your suffering can be redemptive. Your suffering can be beautiful. Uh, Sometimes an impossible mess can still become a beautiful thing in God's hands. Uh, Jesus joins you in your suffering, and so you can see that there may be value even in being treated unfairly. Also, sometimes you're going to realize the fight is just not worth it, that you are going to come up against someone that's so hard-headed and so unfair that you shouldn't reasonably expect them to be right to you and that's okay. That's the way people are going to be. Systems are going to fail. People are going to be unfair. Um, I'm not suggesting you be pessimistic about people, but you've got to guard your heart. You have to be wise enough to know when somebody is just so covered in their own mess that they can't listen and hear truth and kindness. Uh, But also, uh, just as Jesus is willing to love people to death, we need to show a willingness to give of ourselves so that we can love other people sacrificially. Jesus-like living means that we put other people first. And we don't have to take personal attacks so personally, right? Like, sure, you're treating me poorly, but it's more important to me that you know that I love you than I process the fact that you hate me, right? Right? Like, the way I feel about you is the thing I'm going to focus on. And then finally, if God's for you, who's, who can be against you? Ultimately, if you're having something that feels really unjust and unfair, God will make it right in the long run. And it may not be fun today, but there will be a day when it will be okay. And the amount that we get worried about this stuff is probably directly related to the amount that we trust that God is really going to take care of us in the end. Um, The story of this, the lesson of Jesus' death, is that Jesus died so that you can live a victorious life. So that you can see that the battle is won and you don't have to keep fighting. In your everyday life, as you experience things, even if you experience unfair and unjust things, Like Jesus, there is something about coming to a place where you trust God so implicitly and you live so deeply in the victory that's already won that you just don't have to strive and fight so hard to make sure that people are being fair and right to you. They weren't fair and right to Jesus. You're in good company. But what we see in this story is that God still does beautiful, glorious things, regardless of how unfair our circumstances may be. All right. Um, it is time for our Q&A. Did you guys have any questions about today's sermon? I think it's a good question because what we see in scripture often, Jesus talks about this. He goes, you know, you search the scripture, scriptures thinking that they have life and you're right, but you're missing it. And um, I think one of the things that's really helpful for us to remember is the role of God's word and the role of the Bible in Christian life which is it's a vital, essential thing for us to grow and know God's will. But it is not the only thing that helps us to know God's will. That God still moves in our life. The Holy Spirit works in our heart. Uh, Christian community shapes us. There's a lot of different ways that God should shape us. And what happens is when we become um, scholars without becoming followers of Jesus— Right. When we know the word really, really well, but we never ask how it applies to our lives. When we read God's wisdom, but we never ask God for wisdom. Um, It can metastasize into something really gross. And that's what happens with the Pharisees is they were really intent on reading God's word, but not on asking God to enlighten them. I think, there's, I think there's a variety of things. I think some of them probably were power hungry. Um, I think some of them just were taught really bad ways of thinking about things. I mean, I think some of it is poor doctrine, like, um, is, is an issue there. Um, but, yeah, I think ultimately it, it's most human problems are selfishness at their, their core. And, yeah, I think they like to be better and brighter and smarter and more powerful than anybody else. Uh, so yeah, I think there was pride. I think some of them just wanted to um, to walk around feeling smarter than everybody else. And so if they heard anything that suggested they were wrong, they couldn't hear that because that would make them feel not as smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think we, we want to generally avoid being too like um, patronizing of people, but it does remind me a lot of kids. Like There's times where your kids will be nasty to you and say a mean thing like, You know, even kids will say, like, I hate you, or you're a terrible mom or dad. And it hurts us a little bit, but most of us are like, okay, she's three. She's just being a pain in the butt, you know? Um, But we've got to be able to do that a little bit with other people, too. Like, that person doesn't really mean that. They really don't know what they're talking about. They're just lashing out because they're emotional and they're upset. And learning how to react to that with love is very hard for us, I think. Yeah, and, and I think there's probably a pragmatic thing, just like the real nitty-gritty. If you see two people in a disagreement and one says 8,000 words really angrily and the other person is really self-controlled and just kind of takes it, generally the one who's more quiet <laughs> looks better in the end, right? Like we've all seen this in a lot of circumstances where one guy's like, Whoa! the other person's like, okay, okay, I hear you, that's all right. You know, like th- that like sense of self-assuredness generally proves a point. and so if you're trying to upend a system, it is the person who is mourning the death of a system that gets real crazy and angry.